As I mentioned last night, I want to talk about happiness and joy this retreat. Um, just because I think, uh, based on our own experience, we somehow think it can seem to us at least that the practice, the path, is about learning to tolerate difficulty and learning not learning how not to compound what's difficult in life by not reacting in life. But the Buddha talks about joy and happiness quite a bit. And as I think I mentioned last night briefly, it's not really easy for us to wake up to be a good human being without accessing joy. We really need to find our way to joy. And in the tradition, you know, there's uh, this real turning point, whether you think of the story of the Buddha's awakening as a legend or as a teaching story or as literal truth, It's a really useful instruction for us because, um, you know, the Buddha really felt his suffering, you know, noticed the tendency of his mind to revert back to cycles of greediness and irritation and aversion and same kind of stuff we notice in our own mind and he really wanted to be done with that mental suffering he deeply aspired to be done with it and he tried different kinds of control you know mind control breath control fasting not eating food like um, controlling the body, not listening to the desires of the body, let's say. And he found that all of that, all of those attempts, was a dead end. And you can imagine what a setup that moment or those moments were for the Buddha and probably for many spiritual aspirants over the course of history. Because, you know, This is a common spiritual move, just happens to be a dead end, but to basically have a honest, authentic recognition that I'm suffering and that life, it has something to do with life, you know, having a mind, having a body, having a life, and I hurt, and I don't know the way out, and it just seems to make spiritual sense to deny the mind, to deny my life, to deny my body, which is what the Buddha tried, right? It's like, I give up. And it's almost like saying the path to happiness is not to be a human being, to not be sensitive, to not have a body, to not have a mind, then I'll be happy. Well, that's just not in the cards right now. We do have a life, we do have a body, we do have a mind. So in that deep 
I'm guessing, deeply frustrating time where the Buddha sort of came to the place where he saw all of his efforts not leading to anything of real value, of lasting value. Then it's said in the tradition that uh, memory came back to him of a time when he was a young boy and his father was some sort of head of the clan, wasn't really a king, I guess, as scholars understand it, but sort of, you know, shared leadership among one family of this local community. And his father was one of the chieftains, one of the head people. And uh, they had some kind of spring plowing ceremony, probably, probably a feast day for the community. And they put the little cute kid underneath a beautiful rose apple tree, probably hemmed him in with a fence or something. And because it was a ceremonial day, day of feasting and probably fun stuff, maybe music, who knows. And what the Buddha now was remembering some, you know, 30 years later, as a 35-year-old person, remembering back to the time of being this young child, is how his mind, just in, you know, tripping on the joy, on the fun, on the goodness of that festival day, and all that was around, the mind, instead of being captivated by the music, by the sights, by the smells, maybe because of some spiritual inclination, the Buddha did what we're trying to do, which is to turn inward, right? So the so there was joy because of these external things, but instead of being captivated by the external things, the Buddha got interested in the joy itself and the delight itself. And then when the mind turns to delight, but the delight gets stronger because of this full attention. Right? So it relatively speaking it gets bigger. And when it gets bigger, the attentiveness gets stronger because, whoa, there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of rapture, there's a lot of delight. And it builds like that, sort of the opposite of a panic attack, right? And the Buddha's mind, as it's said in the tradition, slipped or dropped into the first jhana, this state of meditation, where the mind is deeply secluded from unwholesome qualities of mind. And this is what the Buddha now, at age 35 or so, remembered. And then the question, as he was having this memory, reflecting on it perhaps, and then the thought came, is there anything dangerous, anything unwholesome about this kind of pleasure? Right? Because remember, he was, he had, you know, because of the pervasiveness of stress and suffering, he wanted out, and that wasn't working, and that was just, banging your head. So his practice needed a correction. And then it was really around this, the role of pleasure in spiritual life is this powerful correction. 
Because the answer that came to the Buddha is, no, there's no danger, there's no problem in this kind of pleasure. So this is important for us as we're understanding the meditative process and how to access joy in our practice and in our lives generally. There are two sources of joy, generally speaking. Getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want, that's one source. In Buddhism, we call that a worldly pleasure, right? Because there's a very real worldly pleasure. When I have something that's really tormenting me and I somehow get away from it or get rid of it, it feels good. Or when I finally get something I really want that's delightful and pleasant in an ordinary sense, well, that, you know, at least temporarily, it feels really good to get what I want. So that's ordinary or worldly pleasure. And unworldly pleasure is really this pleasure of seclusion. And it really matters uh, what we pay attention to. Like, that little child, the memory the Buddha was having as a little child, he could have been paying attention to the banquet table, you know, and how many sweet rolls or whatever was on that banquet table. And like the image, the thought might have been, will there be something left for me? Right? Some kind of desire and greed. Well, then... If that was the activity of the mind, he wouldn't have dropped into jhana. But there was the Buddha, little baby Buddha, a Buddha-to-be, and, uh, and there was a lot of delight. And instead of wanting to grasp the objects of the delight, the mind, for whatever reason, got interested in the delight, the delight itself, Right? And it's, this is that happiness of seclusion or the happiness of renunciation because this happiness then isn't dependent on sense experience. It's the happiness that comes when the mind is starting to realize that it's independent of sense experience. It doesn't have to be dependent on sense experience. So, just to kind of give you give everyone a little heads up, when we're sitting here for another, yes, another set, yes, there will be another set tonight at nine o'clock. You know, and especially on the first day, it can feel a little bit like torture. You know, to have to sit for another whatever it will be, twenty minutes maybe tonight, from nine to nine twenty. We're really, and we're. You know, we're not given anything exciting to pay attention to. If we're lucky, it's something neutral, right? Like feeling the body sitting somewhat neutral till about two minutes, and then definitely not neutral. <laughs> if we're lucky, the breath stays somewhat neutral, even if the body's aching or restless or sleepy or whatever. Breathing in is a relatively, for most people, neutral experience. Breathing out is a relatively neutral experience. Hearing the 
furnace kick on and kick off, hearing the gentle shuffling of people adjusting their postures, mostly neutral. But with this relatively neutral experience, the mind can notice its independence. It, you know, with neutral experience, the mind tends to be equanimous. It doesn't have a strong opinion about that last in-breath or that next out-breath. It's just another thing in the woods, another thing in the forest that the mind is knowing, just the next thing. And so this really supports not relating to the breath or relating to the whole body sitting or relating to the sounds with an agenda of getting what I want and getting rid of what I don't want, but really being present, knowing that because the experience is somewhat neutral, noticing the mind not dependent on the in and out breath, aware, intimate, but not grasping. And this really begins, uh, it sort of creates the conditions for the mind to feel the pleasure of mindfulness, the pleasure of seclusion. The mind that isn't seeking something outside of this moment. But when I'm capable of being wrapped, joyfully interested in the present moment, but not expecting to find like a really nice experience or get rid of a unpleasant. Then the fullness of the mind, not dependent on an external experience, becomes more apparent. And this is that thread of joy I talked about last night, there's something pleasant in an inner sense about the wholeness or fullness of present moment awareness. And this is really what we want to learn how to sense and follow. call this the happiness of letting go, the happiness of non-attachment, the happiness of renunciation, the happiness of contentedness, the happiness of independence, a mind, the mind, the heart independent of what's coming and going. Like that biblical phrase, is it in the world but not of the world? Sort of here, engaged, but not needing conditions. Like, in a sense, the heart is aligned with the happiness of letting go, the happiness of non-attachment. So, 
you see any experience that might arise for me, a really beautiful, nice, people loving me, giving me nice stuff, a really terrible experience, people mistreating me, because the life is aligned with the happiness of non-attachment, any particular circumstance or experience can be related to with non-attachment. But if I'm orienting around the happiness of getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want, then I'm definitely going to be pushed around by the conditions or circumstances of my life. So we say we're moving toward a happiness that's not conditioned, not dependent on circumstances being favorable. Well, that seems to make a lot of sense. It really matters, you know, what we pay attention to. There's a a really sweet poem that I like by Raymond Carver. It's called Happiness. So it's early. Oh, I'm sorry. So early, it's still almost dark out. I'm near the window with coffee and the usual early morning stuff that passes for thought when I see the boy and his friend walking up the road to deliver the newspaper. They wear caps and sweaters, and one boy has a bag over his shoulder. They are so happy. They aren't saying anything, these boys. I think if they could, they would take each other's arm. It's early in the morning, and they are doing this thing together. They come on slowly, The sky is taking on light, though the moon still hangs pale over the water. Such beauty that for a minute, death and ambition, even love, doesn't enter into this. Happiness. It comes on unexpectedly and goes beyond, really, any early morning talk about it. Now, you could say that, you know, you could imagine that the man's who or the person who's watching this, you know, their mind might get fixated on this or on that aspect. Oh, I remember when I was a boy. But it's the same thing that I I try to describe, you know, imagining what happened to the Buddha, the little baby Buddha-to-be under the rose apple tree that appreciation, right, the the capacity to appreciate. Initially, it seems like the appreciation is dependent on seeing the two boys walking up, you know, the driveway delivering papers. But that may have been the initial, just like when you look out at the lake or you see one brown leaf against all that whiteness, you know, when you're looking in the woods or whatever, beautiful image might strike the mind at some point. Bird at the bird feeder, somebody smiling when they see lunch. You know, there are all kinds of little gems that will land. And then it really matters what the mind takes up as the object. 
if it clings to something external, then the happiness is fragile. You know, if it's the golden color of the finch, then we'll be so disappointed when a brown sparrow comes, you know, and the finch goes away. But if it's the fullness of the heart itself that the mind takes up as its so-called meditation object, instead of the particular cause for the mind unifying, the mind coming together in the present moment, That really, like as a practitioner, we're, we can't control so much the circumstances of our retreat, how the people are around us, how our roommate is, what they're serving for lunch, even our health. You know, there's so much in motion and we don't have a lot of control over so much of that. But in any moment, it really matters what sign, what aspect the mind is paying attention to. And we have to appreciate how much our habit energy is to focus on external signs. And not even the, you know, the yellowness of the bird, but the idea that I like it. That's what we cling to. I like that bird, I like that color that species, not this other one. Good, bad. (laughs) Good meal, bad meal. And then the mind ends up getting pushed around by its likes and dislikes, which only makes the mind more hungry for having pleasure because it's feeling a little bit oppressed or even a lot oppressed by being pushed around by its likes and dislikes, and on and on. So the interesting question like, when I take what sign, what aspect of the present moment up with awareness, when I pay attention to what is happiness and release that emotion? when I take up what other aspect of the present moment is torment and stress said emotion. And in any moment, there's different, you know, the word in in sort of technical meditation language is nimitta. Some of you might know that word, the sign like what the mind is, how the mind is interpreting or what the mind is making up about the present moment. And some of what my mind's making up right now, if I fix on that or take that up, it will take the mind down a particular road of agitation and mental proliferation. But I don't have to take up that particular sign or interpretation. Like, for example, I could reflect, I could notice, I could train my mind to notice what a wholesome thing it is that we're here. What a wholesome thing it is that you all survived your first day and a lot of new people on this retreat. 
it's not always so easy being on retreat. It's not easy committing to noble silence and just the routine of the retreat. There's all kinds of impulses to leak and then to sort of hold that, take care, like, oh no, I'm really going to support the container. We're all in this together. Do the best I can, start over. So I can notice the wholesomeness of that commitment, everyone doing the best they can. And that can lead to a feeling, a good feeling. And that good feeling isn't greed, it isn't fear, it's appreciation. Right? And so then I can notice the appreciation and it draws the mind uh, into an independence because love, you know, appreciation is just a flavor of love. Love is quite nimble. Once the mind has accessed uh, that generous quality of love, compassion, forgiveness, patience, tenderness, equanimity, any of those qualities that know how to let the moment be the way it is, not need the moment to be other than it is. So then that love, it isn't dependent on conditions. It can continue to blossom. It's like what you did and we'll do again tomorrow and Sunday for the guided loving kindness practice. You know, we might initially bring somebody to mind because it helps us remember my heart's capacity for love. But the love we feel when we bring that person to mind or we bring ourselves to mind and realize I do care about my life, I care about this heart. But when I, I do this sort of little move, this meditative move where I'm, I might have initially thought about this person and how much I care about them, but then I switch the attention to love itself. And the love isn't actually dependent on anything. Just like awareness isn't dependent on objects. So we're going from a mind that is dependent and then pushed around by external things which come and go and nobody's in control with to a mind that's not dependent. And this is the basic process of healing and samadhi, the development of samadhi, concentration. And the point I'm making now is it really matters, like as a practitioner, what I'm paying attention to. And you can just ask, well, what is the mind paying attention to? And what's the effect of paying attention to this? And what might be wholesome? What is here and would be a wholesome object to pay attention to? One of my favorite chapters in one of Achan Cha's books, he didn't really write any books, Anyway, the Dharma talk is detachment, 
within activity. Sama samadhi. So sama means even samadhi. It usually gets translated as right samadhi, right concentration or right uh, unification of the mind. But actually the word sama is more like uh, even or in alignment with the way, samadhi that's in alignment with the nature of things. And in this, the Ajahn Chah, this very well-known Buddhist monk, Thai forest master, and really influential in Buddhism coming here to the West. People like Jack Hornfield studied with Ajahn, uh, Ajahn, Ajahn Chah and also Ajahn Sumedho, really important Western monk who's taught a lot of us. And he's talking about um, the five jhanic factors, as they're called. These are five qualities of mind that um, help us understand this unification, this coming together of the heart and mind, the balancing. And this is the essential inner good feeling, samadhi healing, uplifting, light, unifying feeling. And it's what makes the heart, the mind brave to be with the inevitable difficulties that come our way as a human being and also in spiritual life. And this is what I meant earlier in the talk when I talked about how joy Happiness is essential. It's really this inner joy of samadhi. So he's talking about it now in terms of mindfulness of breathing. When practicing samadhi, this unification of the mind, we fix our attention on the in and out breaths at the nose tip or the upper lip. This lifting the mind to fix it is called vitaka or lifting up. What I called last night and this morning, uh, vitaka, I called it connecting or connecting or application of mind is another way it gets translated. The mind scattered, whatever, doing what it does out of habit. And then because we have a practice, we no, I don't want to just let the mind do what it wants to do. I want to apply my mind. I want to connect with the here and now, with the way that it is. And so that's that lifting up. We're, and it takes, it as I think I mentioned this morning in the guide, it said it removes sleepiness. We often think, well, I know I need energy in order to make effort, but it's the making effort that brings in energy in the mind. The intention to connect, to bring the mind to the present moment. When we have thus lifted the mind and are fixed on an object, we call, this is called vichara. So that's the sustaining of present moment awareness. So vitaka, connecting, vichara, sustaining. The contemplation of the breath at the nose tip. 
This quality of vichara will naturally mingle with other mental sensations and we may think that our mind is not still, that it won't calm down. But actually this is simply the workings of vichara as it mingles with those sensations. Now remember I mentioned like when we connect with the present moment, it may feel like but when we have that intention to sustain present moment awareness, well, all of a sudden, you know, as the mind begins to unify because of the sustaining of present moment awareness, there's a lot of activity. And then the not-so-wise mind will think, i got to get this thing under control. I'm getting distracted, or there's lots of different things being known. And we'll make the wrong kind of effort in that moment. So the point that Ajahn Chah is making here is that with Richara, that sustaining, like you come back to the present moment, maybe some of you are using your whole body awareness, some of you are using your breath at your belly, some at your nose, some are maybe using hearing as your primary meditation anchor. You've been lost in thought, you bring your attention back to the present moment, you have that sort of that's kind of a bold and uh, distinct move where the mind connects. Oh yeah, this is happening. This is being known. And, and we feel like from an egoic point of view, like at least I've done something right, you know, I've connected. And then we remember like, no, I got to sustain it. And it almost immediately feels like, like it triggers all that doubt, like I must be doing something wrong because there's all this other stuff happening. And that's the misunderstanding that like we think that the connecting is the answer, but then there's this whole learning how to be in the wildness, the movement of the present moment. So that in the context of other phenomena coming and going, can we, can the mind sustain its interest? Right? And the joy of that interest comes in how wild it is, like the example I used running down the, the stream bed. Right? It's like there's so much happening. It's so, e it would be so easy for the mind to latch onto this object or that object, this opinion or that opinion. But to keep the mind in that fluid, not fixed. I mean, I know he's using the word fixed here, but some of it is just how translations go. But to keep the mind open and not attached, that's really the name of the game for sustaining. So really be on the lookout. A lot of times, meditators, they lose the continuity of present moment awareness because they think they have to fix something or they think this can't be right when it's right. This is how it is. There's a lot going on in the mind, right? Maybe this is how it is. Because the sustaining of present moment awareness isn't trying to control the present moment. It's trying to see things as they are in this non-intrusive, non-judgmental way. Let me read a little bit more here from Ajahn Chah. 
So just going back a sentence, this quality of vichara, sustaining, will naturally mingle with other mental sensations. And we may think that our mind is not still, that it won't calm down. But actually, this is simply the workings of vichara as it mingles with those sensations. Now, if this goes too far in the wrong direction, our mind will lose its collectedness. So then, we must set up the mind fresh, the mind afresh, right? So we need ritaka, that connecting. Oh, and we have that more, not forceful, but more intentional application of mind to some object in the present moment. So there's a moment of certainty, this is being known. It's like this. And there's some confidence, dharma confidence, this is the present moment. Right? It's not a projection, I'm not lost in thought, the mind's connected. And he uses lifting it up. As soon as we have thus established our attention, Vichara takes over, mingling with the various mental sensations. Now, when we see this happening, our lack of understanding may lead us to wonder, why has my mind wandered? I want it to be still. Why isn't it still? This is practicing with attachment. Actually, the mind is simply following its nature. But we go and add onto that activity by wanting the mind to be still and thinking, why isn't it still? Aversion arises and so we add that on to everything else, increasing our doubts, increasing our suffering, and increasing our confusion. So if there's vichara, the sustaining, <coughs> reflecting on the various happenings, happenings within the mind, in this way, we should wisely consider so we should take this advice. So what should we wisely consider? And this is what Ajahn Chah says. Ah, the mind is simply like this. Not to doubt, and Wint's going to, I think, talk about that tomorrow night. Like when the mind is really seeing the nature of things, it may be wild, it may be messy, it may be all over the place. But that doesn't mean we're not having the continuity of present moment awareness. It may be exactly we're seeing things as they are. There are these other phenomena coming and going in the mind and body. So why wouldn't awareness notice and recognize this activity? Well, of course it should, it would. So remember that phrase, you can use it. Ah, the mind is simply like this. <laughs> or present moment is simply like this. Oh. He goes on, there, that's the one who knows, Tokken. In uh, the way, in the Thai force tradition, the one who knows means the Buddha, the wise, the wisdom in the mind. <clears throat> Telling you to see things as they are. The mind is simply like this. We let it go at that, and the mind becomes peaceful. When it's no longer centered, we bring up ritaka, that application of mind, right? We lift the mind up, we connect once more. And shortly there is calm again. Ritaka and richara work together like this. We use richara to contemplate the various sensations which arise. When richara 
becomes gradually more scattered, we once again lift our attention with Vitaka. And of course, the important thing is this non-attachment, because it's not about the experience, it's about the mindfulness or the continuity of awareness. We're not looking for a particular experience, we're looking to connect and sustain this beautiful, balanced mind. We're looking to be intimate with the way it is. So we can realize this more complete, this more full non-grasping. Non-grasping freedom can only be realized in the context of being grounded or real or intimate. There's no non-attached, like I'm really not attached to what's going on in the Middle East because I'm not in the Middle East, you know, and I don't even know really what's going on actually. So it's relatively easy for me to be, you know, feel like above it all for these things. Even the coronavirus, you know, it's just theoretical to us. But if we were trapped in a city of 11 million people with, you know, whatever, 40,000 cases, we might have a different relationship. So it's the same thing with the deepening of wisdom. It really takes this connection and then the sustaining, really aware of this activity of the body and the mind to realize non-attachment. And here's the interesting thing. When we let the wild mind be wild, when we let objects come and go because we're sustaining present moment awareness, but when we're letting this all happen without trying to control it, then it starts to quiet down. Things become more and more refined. Precisely because we're not trying to control the mind and body. So when you're sitting there, I, I bet you've stumbled, I mean, even relatively new people stumble on this insight. You know, you're sitting and it feels like, oh my God, when is this sit going to end? Right? And wanting the sit to end is just too painful. So, you bring your attention to the experience of the body and mind. Whether you use a particular anchor like your mindful mindfulness of breathing or just feeling the whole body or just being aware of the moment as it is, the activity of the body and the mind. But to the degree the mind connects and then sustains present moment awareness, then that mind, if it's allowing the body to feel the way the body feels, the mind, let's say it's reacting, the mind reacts the way the mind reacts. When it just leaves everything alone, everything settles down. Precisely because we're not trying to make it settle down. We're just being aware of it. And then it settles down. And things become more refined. And it's almost like the joy and the ease percolate up through that settling down process. It's almost like a shift, like that sense of joy, lightness, buoyancy, and it can be even more intense, the joy, and then maturing into kind of a contented ease. It just reveals itself in 
the non-struggle with the wildness of the present moment. So it's there's a, a very beautiful patience that we begin to trust, being patient with the conditions of the body and mind as they are. Because that's the way forward in our meditation, whether it's walking or sitting. Being patient, yeah, like uh, he says, we could add the body to this. Uh, the mind is simply like this. The body is simply like this. Because in that moment, in that moment of realizing the body and mind is simply like this, there's that recognition that we're doing what we're supposed to do. I wouldn't know. That's an insight, actually, knowing that the mind is simply like this. It's sort of like recognizing it can't be any other way. This is how it is. <laughs> this is how the mind is. This is how the body is. It's not a mistake that the mind is acting this way, moving this way, the body feels this way, moving this way. Maybe really unpleasant, but that doesn't mean it's a mistake. And the key is, out of compassion, wanting it to be other than it is, is what makes it so hard to bear, this mind and body. Letting the mind and body be is what allows it to become more bearable and ultimately beautiful. And it's not so much that the body and mind become beautiful, but the non-attachment itself. It's a better way to think about it. When we experience some real, and we talk about it, these are just different um, vibratory, vibratory levels of happiness. So the more rough form of happiness is joy, more settled is ease, sukha, into peace and stillness, right? So that's considered the most refined kind of happiness. So the happiness is, is really the understanding of non-grasping, maturing in the mind. So when that initial feeling, lightness and even intensity of joy that we can, it's when the mind is realizing that this activity of the mind and this activity of the body can just be given permission to move. And it's like, rapturous, like, I don't have to oppose the present moment, the activity of the present moment. And so all of a sudden it feels very alive with movement, which is that movement of joy. And as the mind more deeply understands what's happening, it begins to trust and so what stands out is that ease of contentment. Like, whoa, it's all happening on its own. And, there, and the mind is, the wisdom in the mind is beginning to sense the release of craving, of being the one who has to do something. And that's contentment. And then that just matures that the peace or the stillness is craving going quiet, right? So all the subtle and not so subtle cravings to do, to become, to get, to get rid of, they go temporarily quiet. And so then we call that a time in a set where the mind was really still, deeply, deeply peaceful. The peace is the absence of craving in the mind. 
the absence of the mind trying to do something or get somewhere. That's what peace is. It isn't a thing itself. It's really the absence of that doing, trying to get somewhere, trying to become someone, trying to get rid of something. So this is just the happiness of non-attachment. And as I mentioned, this is always available. And you can think about this too. Because sometimes thinking will lead you to contemplate life. Like even right now, you may be tired or you may be excited. I mean, who knows? But whatever it is, we can contemplate what is the happiness of non-attachment. Maybe you feel really restless. Okay, non-attachment. Is there, can I sense, can the wisdom in the mind and the heart sense a trustworthy happiness of not having a problem with the way the mind and body is right now or the moment is right now? Can we sense that? Can we sense the happiness of non-attachment? And it's totally okay to say, no, I don't sense it. Well, then we can ask, what well, can we sense the burden of attachment? Because even that gives us a clue, like, oh, not that. Not having that burden of, like, wanting to get to bed. Or not having that burden of, you know, whatever, wanting the talk to be over. A little later, Achen writes or spoke, if we know the nature of the mind like this, then we let go, just like letting the water flow by. Vichara, sustaining, becomes more and more subtle. Perhaps the mind inclines to contemplating the body or death, for instance, or some other theme. When the theme of contemplation is right, there will arise a feeling of well-being. What is this? What is that well-being? It's pity or rapture, joy. Pity, well-being, arises. It may manifest as goose pimples, <laughs> goosebumps, coolness, lightness. The mind is enwrapped. Right? Joyful interest, sometimes people call it. He, he goes on. This is called pity, rapture. There are, also, there are also pleasure, sukha, the coming and going of various sensations, and the state of ekagata, one-pointedness. So this is the, uh, the completion of these five qualities, and I'll talk a little bit more about them tomorrow night, but I put on the bulletin board uh, several sheets um, that say the title is Samadhi, the arising of five jhanic factors and the abandoning of the five hindrances. And so again, the five are connecting, sustaining, joy, and then that happiness when it settles becomes sukha. You could call that ease, ease of well-being. And then one-pointedness, akagata, stillness, but this one-pointedness isn't like a focus. Like that's not a one-pointedness isn't really a good definition. It's the mind feels 
um, whole. It doesn't feel fragmented. It doesn't feel pulled by this and that. So maybe that's why it gets translated as one-pointed. There's a real wholeness in this one-pointedness. Ajahn Sumedho, this uh, American Buddhist monk, he translates ekagata, this one-pointedness, as uh, the one point that includes everything. And it's that absence, it's the it's really characterized by equanimity because the mind isn't having a problem with anything. That's what allows for the not the mind not being fragmented. The way the mind gets broken apart, beaten up, is because it wants things to be different, it wants to hold on, it wants to make things this way or that way. But when craving is put aside temporarily, then that mind can be really still and whole. And it can really see things as they are, too. So the what I like about this list, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, uh, not tomorrow night, but in two nights, is that each of these five, and it's written on the sheet, and it's just a page and a half, not even a page and a half, so you can take a look at it sometime, and then just put it back on the bulletin board so other people can look at it. I think I have four or five copies there. But for each of these qualities, and they go from gross, connecting is the most gross of these wholesome factors of the mind, the muscle to connect. But when I connect, I put aside sloth and torpor, I mentioned. And you could just see that when you make the effort to lift the attention to connect with the present moment, there's an alivened quality by just by making that effort. And then when you sustain present moment awareness in the wildness of the present moment, things coming and going, different objects, as Ajahn calls it, mingling with other mental sensations, right? That it's, I you know, I've never ridden a wild horse, but there's a sense of like, not being thrown off by all our doubts, all our thoughts that it shouldn't be this way, that I should, you know. All of that is just more mental sensations that we're mingling with, that awareness is mingling with. A doubt is just another object there in the dance of the present moment. We don't need a correction. And then the joy... So the, the sustaining puts aside doubt, right? Because when we're sustaining present moment awareness, then that means we're not confused by doubt. Because when we get confused by doubt, we lose the thread of the present moment. Because that's what doubt does. It means, am I doing this right? See, then I'm not doing it. I'm thinking, am I doing this right? And I'm identified with that doubt. So I've lost the thread of the present moment. So it's said that Connecting puts aside sleepiness. Sustaining puts aside doubt. Joy puts aside ill will. Right? Because when we feel that lightness, we're not hostile. It's like, I got what I want. Not ill will. I don't have ill will. I don't have aversion. 
And then when that joy matures more into ease, then restlessness goes away. It's like, that's contentment, right? Like, I don't need the moment to be different than it is. And you actually feel that energetically. It's like a real, almost like a sense of weight. Like, I don't want to move. You even have that sense like, the body doesn't want to move. That's that ease, that quality of sukha. And then the last, ekagata, the one-pointedness, uh, is said to put aside sense desire or craving. Right. So that's how those five hindrances, the hindrance of craving, wanting, the hindrance of restlessness, ill will, um, <clears throat> doubt, and sleepiness, they're put aside by getting to know these five factors, the five jhanic factors of connecting, sustaining present moment awareness and the wildness, feeling the joy, everything is moving, happening, the mind isn't resisting anything, whoa, like ah, right, whoa, bright, that's joy, and then trusting, feeling like to do anything. Ah, it's like the ego realizing I don't have to be an ego. <laughs> Neurotically thinking I gotta do holding the world on my shoulders. Ah. And that just matures into a stillness where even the more subtle desiring ceases. And you get the mo- the mind experiences moments of non craving, non grasping, a taste of freedom. Right? So even a good sit where these factors come online gives the mind, the heart, a taste of what freedom is. If we want to know the mind of a Buddha, for example, well, have a good sit. It's that way all the time, you know, where we experience mind free of grasping. We touch into that. So let's... Let go of the words, just take a few seconds to put things down. Thank you.